Hello and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Piotr Schokus and today I'm joined by Helena Murphy, Hajar Medach and Felix Walker to discuss the Western Sahara. We cover the territory's history, its future and the questions it raises about topics such as colonialism and independence. As you know, in any conflict, we have a lot of propaganda, but what the Moroccan and Polisario sources say in the same way is the war is back. The goal is to show how tired we are with the way the international community, and particularly Spain, do nothing. The Secretary General remains committed to doing his utmost to avoid the collapse of the ceasefire that has been in place since 6 September 1991. And he is determined to do everything possible to remove all obstacles to the resumption of the political process. Morocco hugely profits from the occupation, which has made it the world's biggest exporter of phosphates and sardines, all of which comes from the Western Sahara, an area that potentially also has oil and gas. Today we're going to discuss the, the Western Sahara and especially focusing on the independence movement of the Western Sahrawis. And to do that, we're first going to have Haja discussing some general history of, of the region. Then Felix is going to cover the Algerian and Mauritanian involvement in the conflict. Helena is going to discuss the Moroccan policy. And finally, I will do international involvement in the Western Sahara. And after that, we will look at what questions this raises on topics like nationalism and colonialism. Haja, would you like to take it away and introduce the general history of the Western Sahara? In order to appropriately contextualize the Western Sahara as we understand it today, we definitely do need to reach back into the 16th and 17th century to understand how the Moroccan empire worked essentially, and how that's established the basis for a lot of the claims um, that Morocco has over the Western Sahara. So in the 16th century, Morocco is a fairly large empire spanning a lot of the Northwest coastal region of Africa. The Ottomans attempt to invade, but are unsuccessful, which makes Morocco the only Arab country to not be colonized by the Ottomans. And this remains the case. They resist colonial intervention and manage to resist colonial forces until 1912. However, this, ne- this wasn't necessarily the case for the Western Sahara um, as they were colonized in 1884 by Spain. And then sub- subsequently in 1912, Morocco becomes a protectorate of Spain and France after a sustained effort from both nations to colonize it in the late 1800s. And actually, this effort was massive teamwork from basically all of the colonial powers. Britain supports France in colonizing Morocco by essentially giving them arms and military support because they don't want France to intervene in British affairs in Egypt. Similarly, Italy backs off of Morocco because France and Spain agree to not intervene in Libya. So you have this, it's like a very complex European colonial agreement that occurs here. And in 1912, the Treaty of Fez is signed by Sultan Abdul Hafiz, and that initiates the Spanish and French protectorate. Not many changes occur until the 2nd of March, 1956, which is when Morocco gains its independence and begins to claim sovereignty over the Spanish Western Sahara, as the Western Sahara at that point in time wasn't an independent region and had not yet released itself from Spanish rule. Interestingly, two years later in 1958, Spain joins the northern region of Saguilla El Hamra and the southern Rio de Oro to create the region of the Spanish Sahara, which becomes the Western Sahara as we know it. 
1963, there's a border delineation conflict between Algeria and Morocco, uh, where the Moroccan government makes their first formal irredentist claim to the regions of Tindouf and Bashar in Algeria, um, suggesting that as they had previously belonged to the Moroccan empire, they should be returned. This was a particularly important moment in the um, Algerian-Moroccan relationship because it marks an event where Morocco attempts to take advantage of a weakened post-independence Algeria, but as a result of, I think it's Cuban and Egyptian intervention, Morocco fails. And this kind of sets the, sets the ball rolling on the chaotic and tense relationship that we witness until this day between Algeria and Morocco. A few years later, the fledgling Polisario Front is established to regain control of the Spanish Sahara from Spain. And this group is formalized in 1973 after failing to receive support from regional North African government, governments. And this includes Algeria. Algeria was not initially super interested in the Polisario Front. It's only until 73 and 75 that things start to really pick up when Morocco begins to apply pressure on the weakened post-Civil War Spanish government to transfer control over the region of the Western Sahara or the Spanish Sahara as it was known at the time to Moroccan authorities and to Mauritanian authorities as a result of historical ties. Now this is a super contentious decision and it goes to the International Court of Justice who essentially end up uh, challenging the legality of this request and argues that Spain can only transfer control of this region of the Spanish Sahara to the Sahrawi people themselves, to the Sahrawi nomadic tribes, essentially rejecting all claims that Morocco has to sovereignty over the region and to historical controls. King Hassan II does, uh, the king of Morocco at the time. He organizes one of the largest demonstrations of Moroccans called the Green March. 350,000 unarmed Moroccans, accompanied by the Moroccan army, marched to the border between independent Morocco and the Sahara that is still under Spanish control, and uses this to pressure the Spanish into acceding and transferring control. And this is known as the Madrid Accords, where Morocco gets control and sovereignty over two thirds of the Western Sahara, and Mauritania gets the remaining third. It is important to note here, that at no point are the Sahrawi people consulted or spoken to or considered. It's only once Algeria witnesses this formalization um, of the transfer of control that they begin to formally offer their support to the Polisario Front. And the Polisario Front sets up their headquarters in Tindouf, which is in Algeria and the previously contested region that Morocco had attempted to reclaim. And then we get to the point where the UN finally intervenes, and that's 1991, where, you, where ceasefire is agreed between Morocco and the Polisario Front upon the condition that Morocco agrees to a Sahrawi referendum. Unfortunately, the Sahrawi referendum has been delayed over 41 times since the agreed ceasefire. Felix, would you like to continue then on, on the Algerian and Mauritanian perspective on, on the Western Sahara? So in order to understand, to, to better understand the Western Sahara question, one should look at two important regional actors that have impacted the, the direction of this uh, issue, one being uh, Mauritania and the second being uh, Algeria. Mauritania had a more important role historically and today basically is not really involved in the Western Saharan region, as for Algeria has remained involved since uh, the beginning of the issue until today. Mauritania, first off, when the Spanish left the, the region in 1975, the Mauritanian military government 
basically decided to attempt to annex the southern third of Western Sahara, while the Moroccans were annexing the, the top two thirds of the country. In 1979, as this Western Saharan war was deeply affecting Mauritania, a military general called Wald Haidallah took power and to avoid the collapse of his country, basically completely withdrew from Western Sahara and sought to you know, strengthen the relations of his country with neighboring Algeria and decided to recognize the Polisario Front as the representatives of the Sahrawi people and recognized the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic in 1984. This was in a way to stabilize the region and also give up Mauritania's claims to the region because the conflict wasn't um, leading to any positive results for the country. Um, however, this created another issue, which was uh, tensions with Morocco. Morocco allegedly orchestrated some coups against uh, this Mauritanian leader, and there was a successful one in 1984, which was, of course, triggered by the, the recognition of, of the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. And it was Wald Sid Ahmed Taya that took control in 1985. And since then, Mauritania has not been involved in Western Sahara. Um, as for Algeria, on the other hand, has been involved since the beginning and remains very much involved today. You know, the Algerian-Moroccan relationship has been a, a difficult one since the Algerian independence. I mean, at the beginning, sporadic border clashes and even a, an early conflict between the Moroccans and the Algerians in the Tindouf region. Despite this, they remained uh, somewhat close and had regular meetings and some formal diplomatic relations. Even uh, the Arab Maghreb Union, which is a union that comprises um, the, the countries of North Africa, except Egypt, they came to an agreement in 1989 in Marrakesh uh, basically calling for you know the easing of border restrictions, facilitating trade, expanding rail links, establishing re regional airlines. You know, Algeria and, and, and Morocco hope to, to have closer ties to be able to, to develop and uh, create some sort of union in that region that had been historically quite divided. However, it was the Western Saharan question that remained the dividing issue between Morocco and Algeria um, and has affected the relationship between the two since uh, the issue started. For Algeria, for example, they hoped that this agreement would bring greater Moroccan willingness to cooperate on the peace process and that it would lead to some settlement between uh, the Polisario Front and Morocco. However, Morocco saw the, the, the agreement differently and, and interpreted the closening of ties between them and Algeria as a way of, of lifting the pressure on Morocco to give independence to Western Sahara. Since 1994, the borders have been closed. There's a rising of tensions today, and these were reignited um, in 2020 when there was a, 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 milita a Moroccan military in intervention in the south of the Western Saharan region uh, because some, uh, some uh, Sahrawis had basically tried to block a road that linked Morocco to Mauritania. In order to better understand the, the Algerian position on this question, it's important to look at what that question means within the country. Historically, you know, they've been strong supporters of the, the, the Sahrawi independence movement. However, there has been a decreasing support for quite a while now. There's a cost to this support. In 1988, there was riots in Algiers and the Polisario Front headquarters were attacked as many people basically resented the cost of financing the, the Sahrawi people while Algeria economy deteriorated. Additionally, the arms race between Algeria and Morocco has been extremely costly for Algeria. Since the ceasefire, they may have stopped their intense support for the Western Saharan cause and their military support, but there is still that pressure to keep up their support because uh, the Western Saharan question is not just a, a question of supporting a people in their aspirations for independence, 
but it's also a strategic risk because it would give Morocco, you know, a strategic strategic advantage over uh, Algeria. Uh, they would also lose their credibility among all the countries that uh, traditionally looked upon Algeria as the leader of the third world. And, and coming back to today, with the rising tensions between the two countries and their lack of communication, and also the realization that this is not just a conflict between the Western Sahara and Morocco, but is really uh, some sort of proxy competition between Morocco and Algeria, which therefore has quite serious consequences. The Algerian reaction to the news that came recently of uh, Moroccan recognition of Israel and American recognition of Morocco's claims over Western Sahara, um, the Algerians basically increased their lobbying in the United States to reverse this decision. And the Algeria's National Assembly uh, wrote a letter to Biden on the 2nd of February asking him to reverse the decision, which is highly unlikely. Um, but they're also basically securing Russian military and diplomatic backing. Just in January of this year, had open military exercises in Tindouf and are continuing the arms race. And uh, this is extremely worrying because uh, a conflict, uh, if it were to arise between the Polisario Front and Morocco, may pull Algeria into it as well. And that could be a lose-lose situation for, for all parties involved. Thank you for, for that. Uh, and Helena, do you want to then cap it off with saying what the Moroccan policy is? Because that is, in the end, at the heart of, of the whole situation. Effectively, the Moroccan policy on what's happening in the Western Sahara is pretty much what the Moroccan policy has always been, in that as far as Morocco is concerned, the Western Sahara was part of Moroccan territory pre-20th um, century colonialism, and that the Western Sahara rightfully belongs under Moroccan sovereignty. That is fundamentally the Moroccan position. And uh, Morocco is not interested in any solution in which the Western Sahara does not fall fully under Moroccan sovereignty. And it's also important to note that in this regard, the Western Sahara is very symbolically important for Morocco in that Morocco sees it as part of a narrative of decolonization and undoing colonialist influence within the country. What has changed and what I think is important to talk about is Morocco's position on a referendum in the region. So as Hajar mentioned before in 1991 with the UN ceasefire, it was agreed that there would be a referendum to decide on the notion of Western Saharan independence. However, what is also important to talk about is that background to that for decades prior to 1991, um, Morocco had actively been introducing Moroccan settlers into the region. And following 1991, this introduction of Moroccan settlers peaked massively. And suddenly there was a population of tens of thousands of Moroccan settlers that prior to 1991 did not exist in that area. So this issue of an influx of Moroccan settlers becomes a real point of contention between the Polisario Front and Morocco. Because if there is to be a referendum, there first needs to be a discussion of who's going to vote in the referendum. And Morocco's position is everyone who lives in the region should be able to vote, which includes the tens of thousands of new settlers. And from the Polisario and Algerian perspective, only those who are originally um, from the region should be able to vote. And according to Minoso, that should be based on the 1776 Spanish census and the descendants of those from the 1976 census. And essentially, whichever way the voter base is decided, whether it's to the Moroccan perspective of including all inhabitants of the region or the Polisario perspective of only those from the 1976 census, ultimately determines which way the vote will swing. So this point of vote eligibility becomes really difficult between all parties and you know, is 
probably the main reason why, as Hajar said, you know, this referendum has been delayed something like 41 times. Um, basically, the Moroccan position of the referendum really starts to sour towards the end of the 90s. And in 1999, with the death of King Hassan II and the rise of King Mohammed VI, basically the Moroccan position becomes they're not interested in a referendum, certainly not in a referendum that will consider um, freedom as an option for the Western Sahara. And then in 2006, the Moroccans introduced what they call um, the autonomy plan. Now, the autonomy plan is proposed to the UN and effectively it gives the Western Sahara a local government and allows the Western Sahara to basically rule within the region, but it does not give them rights to foreign and defense policy that will come into Morocco. And it also means that they uh, take the Moroccan flag and have to recognize full Moroccan sovereignty. Unsurprisingly, this is not really appealing to the Polisario, but this maintains to be the basis of current Moroccan policy. In 2017, King Mohammed VI made a statement on the anniversary of the Green March, where he said, no settlement of the Sahara affair is possible outside the framework of the full sovereignty of Morocco over its Sahara and autonomy initiative. So effectively, this 2006 autonomy plan is really the epitome of Morocco's position on the region, and nothing has really changed since then. Morocco is not interested in a referendum, whereas the Polisario is only interested in a referendum. And so it seems that these irreconcilable positions have clashed together. And then finally, I'll quickly mention the uh, the international response. I'll start with the UN. So the UN involvement in the Western Sahara started back in 1975 when there was a fact-finding mission which found an overwhelming consensus for independence, which obviously hasn't really gone anywhere. Then in the 1991, after the settlement plan, the United Nations mission for the referendum in Western Sahara was formed, and its goal was to, you know, to run the referendum, and that has never happened. There were some uh, US-sponsored plans called the Baker Plans in the early 2000s, which were initially agreed upon by both the Polisario Front and Morocco, and they finally had managed to figure out how the voting would happen, um, which was the idea that everybody would be allowed to vote in the independence referendum, but only inhabitants in the region would be able to vote for the government. Um, but Morocco rejected this plan and uh, Baker, the um, UN representative, resigned from his position. But then, as Helena mentioned, there was the Western Sahara autonomy proposal proposed in 2006, which has been the policy since then. The Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic is the government's exile of the Western Sahara. It's been recognized by 39 UN member states, although it was 84 in the past. But at the moment, no globally politically influential country does support the um, the independence movement. Um, although the UN does consider the Polisario Front a legitimate representative of the Sahrawis. The, the UN involvement in Western Sahara has been fairly toothless because as Haja and Helena both mentioned, the referendum has been postponed an impressive 41 times because there's consistent disagreement on, on the terms of it. And while the UN was happy with the Morocco-Israel uh, normalization, it was not at all happy about the um, Western Sahara deal. The previous deputy, deputy chairman of Minerso highlighted that the lack of movement, in his opinion, was largely caused by the Moroccans because he highlighted a large degree of voter intimidation against Sahrawis and Moroccan forces, excluding the Sahrawis from voting lists, denying them identification documents, and he even called Moroccan behavior mafia-like. So it is a case where Morocco, you know, to a very large extent, simply uses the UN process to delay 
the um, the situation in sorry uses the UN to de de delay uses the UN to delay the process as much as they can until the uh, Moroccan control of the Western Sahara is simply undeniable. The United States is probably the most important non-African actor in in the situation, and there involvement is historical because the Polisario Front is still a member of the Socialist International and the US gave a lot of support to Morocco due to their Cold War anti-communist priorities. Also Morocco was the first country to recognize the United States as an independent nation so their relationship is very like goes back literally hundreds of years. And uh, in, in the US there is a lot of support for the um, Western Sahara autonomy uh, proposal and this is in part, incidentally, almost an echo of what's happened before. Previously, they were afraid of communists, and now they're afraid of the Western Sahara becoming an Islamist breeding ground. But we will come back to that later in our discussion. A big development in the US's policy towards the Western Sahara was obviously um, its hand in the normalization deal between Israel and Morocco, where in turn or in return for Morocco recognizing Israel, the US would recognize Morocco's claim to the Western Sahara which incidentally was criticized by none other than John Bolton, who said that Trump was wrong to abandon 30 years of US foreign policy on Western Sahara just to score a fast foreign policy victory. I think it's also interesting that James Baker issued a statement on um, Trump's recognition of Western Sahara sovereignty and basically said that it undid decades worth of work and undermined America's position on self-determination. Yeah, because it is, you know, a danger if you look at, you know, if, if America is that willing to break tradition just for its own foreign policy priorities, it has a lot of consequences in. Sadly, it does not seem that Biden is willing to reverse uh, recognition, although there hasn't been any explicit statements on, on that. Maybe the second most important act is France, um, because France does claim neutrality despite their involvement on the Western Sahara War on the Morocco side. They're also a staunch Moroccan ally. They, they have vetoed or threatened to veto all attempts at putting human rights monitoring within the remit of MINURSO. And that means that MINURSO is the only UN peacekeeping mission in the world which does not have this capacity. And French diplomats have said that focusing on human rights is a trick by the Polisario Front to embarrass Morocco and its king which does raise the question that if it's a trick which works so well, then maybe the human rights situation should be improved. And France, therefore, has a lot of influence over the EU, because the EU at the moment is happy with whatever the UN proposes, which is toothless at best. It's like also interesting that, because you were talking about how Morocco tries to like use the UN process to delay, that for a while before 2019, they changed the process so that the UN Minerso had to provide an update to the UN every six months rather than every right, yeah. year, which like actually sped the process along a lot. And then they've rescinded yeah. on that. They've gone back to one update every year. Yeah, I think the US supported actually that that six month yeah. uh, checkup yeah. process. Um, and France kind of pushed pushed back and made it, you know, returned it to the, the one year check in uh, process. And now the fact that there is no UN special envoy since 2019 makes any UN work there quite difficult. Yeah, and and, um, and it seems that Morocco also had put in some uh, rest you know requirements for the next UN special envoy to not be from Germany or any Scandinavian country because they would be biased in Morocco's disadvantage well, or something. That's what Morocco said. Morocco has said that Scandinavian countries are notoriously known to be biased against Morocco, and they and given that Germany has disputed. America's recognition of Moroccan sovereignty in the UN, um, 
they now do not want a German UN special envoy. But it's interesting, you know, like that Morocco can say that because, you know, with the Baker proposals and Baker's first plan, the team that wrote it was almost entirely like Moroccan, basically. Like the team was very heavily um, in favour of Morocco's position. Because one of the big questions this raises is like the idea of nationalism and, you know, to a certain extent in an abstract concept, but also quite directly because the Sahrawis are originally nomads. But also, as as I mentioned earlier, is that the U.S. doesn't agree with Western Saharan independence because it would create a failed state. But even then, there is very a very strong nationalist current among the Sahrawis. So, you know, does anyone have an idea of you know how to approach that or the, an opinion on on like nationalism in the Western Saharan um, context? I think just really briefly to address the um, argument that the Western Sahara would become a failed state if it was given the power to self-determination, I think that's a massive over-exaggeration because I think actually what the US is probably considering as a failed state here is a state that doesn't adequately make use of the resources it has access to. Um, And I think that's a really important thing to consider when we consider the concept of, or the issue of the Western Sahara is that actually it's supremely resource rich. It has phosphates which are one of Morocco's biggest exports and it also has a massive fishing industry which was a point of contention um, I think maybe 10 years back in 2011 with the EU who uh, criticized Morocco's treatment of the Western Sahara um, of the use of the fishing industry that the Western Sahara is in possession of Um, so I think I don't know I think it's very very dramatic to make that suggestion for the US to make that suggestion that the Western Sahara would be a failed state, I just think it's very much predicated on their concern that they wouldn't be able to take advantage of the resources they have access to. And also secondarily, I think, um, I don't I don't necessarily know much about the uh, development of nationalism with Western Sahrawis. I think it's really important to remember that they are a nomadic tribal people. And so the concept of the nation isn't always necessarily directly complementary to how they perceive their community and how they perceive their land as well. But I think also what's really interestingly and what we can really easily contrast uh, the Western Sahara nationalism to is the Moroccan irredentist nationalism. And I think that's, we get, we see that a lot more clearly in this situation than we see the Western Sahrawi nationalist movement. Yeah, and just to get back on on your idea of it being a failed state, I I think what you're saying is entirely correct on that being a fairly questionable statement because from the Western Sahara, like $450 million worth of fish, tomatoes and melons were exported to Europe. And if you add that to the phosphate figures, which is about $180 then you come up up at a number of well over $600 million worth of exports in a single year while there's only 500,000 inhabitants. So if you divide those numbers on each other, people will still, it's not a huge income, but it is still an income, you know, fairly considerable in that part of the world. And that's excluding any kind of services. Well, I was also just going to say that, like, in addition to natural resources, the Western Sahara is Morocco's only way to have a trade route with sub-Saharan Africa. And so geographically, it's also massively important in terms of raising revenue and in terms of trade Um, and that's partly why you know this issue that rose at the end of 2020 with the Polisario um, obstructing trade routes into sub-Saharan Africa wasn't you know necessarily just an issue about 
you know, symbolic nationalism and, you know, the, the presence of the Polisario presenting a threat to um, Moroccan sovereignty, but actually had a very real tangible impact on Moroccan trade with sub-Saharan Africa, and it disrupted trade routes going to various different countries. So yeah, the strategic importance of, uh, of the Western Sahara is massively important. I think when speaking about the economic potential and the strategic regional placement that the Western Sahara has, it's also really important to consider the reality that the access to a lot of these resources, the phosphates, the fishing, the agriculture, the, the trade routes with sub-Saharan Africa are unfortunately a direct result of Moroccan investment in the region. I think when discussing the, the potential for an independent West Sahara nation, the reality is Morocco would probably strip a lot of the infrastructure that exists in the region, therefore debilitating it massively in an economic and trade sense. Meaning that I think when we talk about the economic and financial potential of the Western Sahara, it is important to remember that it's predicated entirely on trade deals signed and agreed to by the Moroccan government and infrastructure installed and maintained by the Moroccan government. I think sometimes it's it's quite easy to forget that actually the Western Sahara really does lack a formal infrastructure and it is Morocco that is basically sorting all of that out for them, which is a very unfortunate situation of dependency. I think it's very interesting like how um, Moroccan infrastructure in the region connects with what um, was said earlier about Morocco is almost trying to delay this process, right, so that the Moroccan presence becomes so naturalized and normalized within the region that it reaches a point where it's undeniable to maintain that Morocco has a claim. And so by laying down these kind of very physical routes in the region, Morocco is really trying to substantiate its claim of sovereignty over the region. And in addition to kind of infrastructure around trade and harvesting of natural resources, very recently, like the big move by Morocco has been to introduce embassies by various countries into the region. Um, and so I think, you know, recently the Cote d'Ivoire opened a consulate um, that was in 2019. The UAE, which was the first Arab country, opened a consulate in the Western Sahara in 2020. And I think in terms of nationalism, um, that infrastructure is really kind of both symbolically and strategically very powerful and solid and like kind of Morocco consolidating its claim on the Western Sahara. Um, I think also an interesting question to ask with regards to the consolidation of Morocco's power is to what extent are they actually a colonial force in the region and do their actions in the Western Sahara differ massively from the French's presence in Algeria? Obviously that's quite a grand example and not necessarily easily comparable given the colonial context of um, Morocco's history but I think it is definitely a comparison uh, that is readily accessible to people when they discuss the Western Sahara. When trying to compare the Western Saharan issue uh, to another issue around the world um, a lot of people point to Palestine and Israel um, because you have uh, you know one force here Morocco and uh, Israel um, claiming that they have this historical tie to the land on which there is a, a, an indigenous population that wish to have uh, self-determination and independence. Um, and the fact that, like we said earlier, Morocco is, is, is making their presence more and more undeniable. And the fact that they've been there for so long and have developed an infrastructure, it means that to remove them from there just, is, is becoming more and more impossible to fathom. Also, the issue of... Um, 
basically a population um, off their land in refugee camps in another country and operating from that country, Algeria, into Western Sahara, which poses an issue for Algeria, like it had posed an issue for Lebanon or Jordan or Syria when the Palestinians were organizing their resistance from those countries and the effects that had, the impact that had on Lebanon, uh, Syria and Jordan. The fact that this 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 issue is just, is, is just like in, with Palestine in Israel, um, this issue is just becoming, it has been extended way too long and a solution for the Western Sahara is, is seemingly impossible. Um, you know, a lot of people like the French are thinking of just adopting the plan that the Moroccans have been um, advocating for, which is an autonomy plan in which basically the Western Saharans would be living in, in Western Sahara um, and would be somewhat autonomous, um, just like the Amazir in the north of, Mor in the north of Morocco, in the Reef region. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of distrust regarding that plan from the Sahrawi population because of the way the Moroccans have dealt with the autonomy of the Amazigh in the north, it being very questionable, and the Moroccan government's involvement in that region um, have basically scared the Sahrawis from a solution like that. But that also basically brings, you know, begs the question, do Moroccans even want to, to absorb all this population that's probably going to be problematic for them in the long run? Well, I was just going to go back to Hijaz more simple but also massively complex question of whether it can be determined whether we can call Morocco's presence in the Western Sahara colonialism. I think from the Polisario perspective, and this is an issue that is massively dependent on perspective, from the Polisario perspective, I think in many ways the Moroccan presence is quite straightforwardly, if not colonialist in, our, in the classical sense, colonialist in at least in the way that it is characterized. But for Morocco, I think it's very, very different in that um, because of Morocco's own colonial history as the recipient of colonialism in a way, their attitude and relationship to the Western Sahara is very different. And it's also important to remember that if this is colonialism in the way that Morocco is uh, engaging with the Western Sahara, it's not colonial in the way that we talk about Western or European powers being colonial in African countries or in India. Um, it's a different beast, but definitely things like the settlement movements and investment in infrastructure and the Moroccan inflation of the population definitely has what I think a lot of people could recognize as colonialist characteristics. And I think the issue is really just how we understand governance and governance by consent. And so from the Polisario perspective, they do not consent, you know, broadly to Moroccan governance and Moroccan sovereignty. And therefore, how can Morocco's presence be anything other than colonialism? And I think in that sense, um, using that argument, it does make a lot of sense to compare the uh, Moroccan Western Sahara conflict to the Palestine-Israel conflict. But I also worry about assessing the Western Sahara issue through uh, a lens that has already been so firmly pre-established and has such an, a complex and intricate history. And so I would I would like to like move away from making comparisons, especially to Palestine and Israel, because I feel like that is really overdone and it ends up just reducing or um, diminishing, I think, the importance of the situation in both regards. I think what's also really, really interesting is, um, and you briefly touched on it, Helena, the 
the colonial and anti-colonial tensions in the whole situation. Because here you have Morocco, an ex-colony, making what could arguably be considered an irredentist, uh, like a legitimate irredentist claim to the Western Sahara, but is then subsequently being punished or criticised or censored by colonies that were involved in constructing the issue itself. And I think often that's the most difficult situation to navigate because actually Morocco sees it as a sort of decolonization, decolonial process where they're actually reclaiming the land that they owned, the land that was part of the concept of Greater Morocco. But in reality, it's not necessarily the case and the people of the region itself don't necessarily consider it as that. And I think that's what often complicates the situation. I feel both can be true. There can be both like an anti-colonial endeavor from one perspective and then a colonialist endeavor from another one. But I do think considering like the human rights situation, it is pretty terrible. Like the imprisoning journalists, there's a vast amount of censorship. So I do think, you know, what I said the other day, it was like a non-violent occupation was entirely untrue. Which which makes it difficult to judge that that censorship and that lack of information and also the lack of powers that the UN has to investigate any form of abuse makes it difficult to form an opinion on really what's going on there. Just brief addition, sorry, to what you just said, Piotr, is that actually um, there is a massive concern with disappeared individuals in Western, in the Western Sahara, people who are believed to have been disappeared by the Moroccan services. And I think that's a really like horrifying aspect of the Moroccan occupation and the Moroccan presence in the Western Sahara is that actually, as you were saying, it's not non-violent. It is actively very violent. It's just a, a violence that is so underreported and so dismissed that nobody knows of it. And I think that's arguably why the Western Saharan conflict and concern goes so so unnoticed in the grand scheme of things because people don't think it's as horrifying or as um, difficult for the Western Sahrawi people themselves. Yeah, I was just going to say that that issue is also compounded by the fact that for sort of propaganda reasons, both the Polisario Front and Morocco don't publish any death tolls in the clashes and conflicts that they have, because obviously for propaganda reasons and to appear strong and effective, they don't want to be publishing numbers in which people are dying. And because of also the UN not having the rights to conduct human rights research, there's just like this massive gap in who's actually in the Western Sahara and who's with which party, which also leads into the voter eligibility thing. Another issue, because there hasn't been a census as I understand it since 1976. And there's all this sort of myth-making about who's actually from the Western Sahara and who's Moroccan. Because one thing all of this raises basically the, you know, the continued Moroccan violence in in the Western Sahara, and also the quick conclusion we have drawn that it's very difficult to get Morocco out of it and, and to get independence for the Sahrawis without, you know, torpedoing the whole country. Like, it basically brings on to, like, what's going to happen in the future, because there is you know, some discussion of the appeal of terrorism among the Sahrawis and the fact that, in general, the older generation of the uh, Polisario Front, they are about to retire or they're going to retire in the, you know, the near future. And then potentially a younger group of revolutionaries or independence-minded individuals will rise to power. And they might have a lot more violent, or maybe the opposite, who knows. Their policies will be different than those of their predecessors. The question is, what's going to happen? And one final point before I give it to Felix. The 
There are refugee camps in which the Sahrawis live in, in Algeria. They are entirely reliant on aid. There's no fire, there's no water, there's no food, which means that the you know, situation is fairly untenable because as Felix mentioned at the beginning, Algeria isn't drowning in money. So there will come a point where some serious movement comes in the situation. Yeah, that's exactly right. Actually, in, in December 2019, the Polisari Front had their 15th Congress and there was basically a debate between those that supported more diplomatic efforts to resolve the issue and others that were supporting more armed approach to that resist to their resistance and there was no consensus but basically there is a growing support among the Sahrawi and especially among the youth uh, for armed resistance due to the frustration of no results being brought through diplomatic means uh, and the fact that now the the reminder that now the powers support Morocco in, in this in this uh, conflict, uh, the Sahrawis are becoming more and more frustrated and desperate. And you have this whole new generation that have grown up in poverty and have they lack opportunity. It's 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 a weird situation because the Polisario Front has never been weaker militarily. They have like three to five thousand soldiers. Um, their weapons are completely outdated, um, and Algeria doesn't really support them militarily anymore. On top of that, you have the fact that Algeria, you know, their support is weaning. And unlike in Morocco, where this is a very popular cause, Algerians, you know, it's not it's not the cause that is the closest to their heart. And so you have the situation where they're increasing the Polisario Front is increasingly weaker, increasingly weaker. Um, but the youth that are frustrated with the lack of, of of progress and this older generation of of people running the the movement that just have progressively lost their legitimacy, this may very well. Uh, lead to some uh, clashes. And actually, it was after that Congress in December 2019 that the Polisario Front chose to block the road in the south of Western Sahara. And so with the the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic celebrating a 45th anniversary of independence just in February of this year, perhaps is going to be a, a call to arms. And we should be worried about this because it would be wrong to assume that Algeria would remain neutral if the conflict were to rise, as they do support the Polisario Front's strategy of attrition. Um, and like I said, there's, there's been no at least apparent recent weapon transfers to the Polisario Front, but this it could happen if a flare-up causes, you know, big losses to the Polisario Front or even to, you know, Algerians present in the region. I also think it's worth mentioning, especially when we consider the public's opinion on the conflict, that Morocco underwent, is that Morocco from the 1960s to the late 1990s experienced what is known as Senawet al-Rasas or the years of lead under King Hassan II, who was one of the most austere kings that Morocco had seen in the past century and who essentially instilled in the nation a very, I, I would say a fear of the monarchy and of the power that they hold, meaning that um, people were often very unwilling to criticize the actions of the government, the actions of the monarchy, the actions that Morocco were taking. Now, I think there is a greater inclination towards free speech and towards um, active criticism of the government and of the king subsequently. And I think that may actually have an influence on how Moroccans themselves perceive the Western Sahara. I think definitely the older generations are very staunch supporters of the Western Sahara as a part of Morocco. And I don't think that's really up for argument. But I think increasingly, as the youth of Morocco interrogate what it means to be Moroccan and what the institution of government and monarchy means for the for the layman in Morocco, 
I think increasingly we will see a bit more public dissonance. I don't personally think Moroccans will go as far as, um, I don't know, say protesting solid, like uh, demonstrating public solidarity, solidarity with the Polisario Front. But I definitely do think it has, it no longer is as uh, central an issue for the Moroccan people as it was in previous years. I remember someone saying that the royal family uses the Western Sahara to to make people rally around the flag. It's a massive aspect of the Moroccan nationalist identity because it's predicated on an act of anti-colonial yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, demonstration. Yeah. And I think that's definitely what's so important. That's why it's really hard to talk about it as being colonialism, because it's like these people have like a shared culture and language and history with this land. It's also believed that within um, government circles in Morocco, if Hassan II uh, would would lose in a referendum over Western Sahara, he would perhaps have to abdicate his throne because it would be a massive, massively dishonorable blow to Morocco. There is a lot resting on this for the Moroccan royal family. But that, that is like a, a quite worrying idea that because if the Sahrawis, even like a few of them, you don't need many people to cause big problems because if you have 500 or 1,000 young Sahrawis who don't see a future, and decide to start like a secession, a violent secessionist movement. It, it's very quickly going to become deeply problematic and potentially quite violent. And, you know, the Sahrawis don't necessarily need to win a war. They just need to make it too costly, both politically and economically, for Morocco to, to stay or to be involved. But at the same time, what would they get? They would have a ruined country with no infrastructure and no trained civil servants to to run it so i don't want to end yet again on a very pessimistic note but i do you know i, I really wonder what like the, the the end game is you know both for morocco and for the sahrawis and for algeria yeah i was just going to say that i think in terms of the future the concern is following the american recognition of moroccan sovereignty that by and large the polisario front has very much played the game of the ceasefire for the last three decades and Algeria, the Polisario and Morocco have not been perfect, but they have all three entered into negotiations. There has been communication, you know, like this was not a lost cause. But I think the American recognition of Moroccan sovereignty sends a message to the Polisario that they have not been heard. And America being the greatest power, really having a stake in this game means that my concern is that the Polisario will see that, you know, the UN and Monerso and official peace processes no longer hold any weight for the Polisario in reaching their end goal and having their voice heard. And so the likelihood of this turning quite violent or turbulent, I think, has been increased by America's um, decision to recognise Moroccan sovereignty. I also think that actually it's very unlikely that the Polisario Front would be inclined to participate in any sort of uh, armed or violent resistance because I think the the, the American recognition of sovereignty over the region acts as a massive deterrent to the Polisario's allies in the region. So in this situation Algeria, arguably their most um, regionally relevant ally, is very unlikely to get involved in a conflict knowing that Morocco would have American and subsequently Western support. Furthermore, it would also complicate Algeria's relationship with their own uh, communities that are seeking secession and that are seeking self-determination in their own rights. But that also draws into question the extent to which Algeria is willing to go when it comes to supporting the Polisario Front, because that would then change the dynamic in their own country.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Almanac is a student-run initiative at the Middle East Centre in the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University or of the Middle East Centre.